this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Folks, this is Ben. You're listening to episode 125 of my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. This is about the fourth time I've tried to record this intro. I've got a terrible cold. I'm sorry about the voice. It is not going so great so far, but we shall prevail. I will continue. We will get through it. So bear with me. Now, this week on the podcast, I had a lovely chat with Tom Oldham. I'm going to introduce Tom a bit later. Bear with us a sec for a bit of admin or housekeeping or whatever I normally call it. See what I mean? It's just not happening this week. Please leave a positive review on iTunes so that others may find out about it. And if you should happen to be need in need of a new uh, Squarespace website, I can sort that out for you using the Squarespace platform, funnily enough, so that you don't have to waste a lot of time and energy figuring out how to do it yourself. Alternatively, some of you will have heard me talk about the snappily titled How to Build Your Own Squarespace Website for Photographers Workshops that I've started running. So just to update those of you who may be interested in that, the date for the first course has been set now for March the 28th, Saturday the March 28th. Uh, That's from 9am to 1pm at a location still to be confirmed in East London. And the fee is 150 quid. So in one morning for 150 quid, you can arrive with no website and leave with a spanking new website and all the know-how required to update and maintain it in perpetuity. I think that's a bargain, but you will decide for yourselves. There are one or two places still available on that workshop, so if you are interested in joining, please email me at ben at bensmithphoto.com. And first come, first serve, you can be um, one of six or seven people uh, joining me for that workshop. Now, don't forget there is... Also now an exclusive fortnightly members-only episode of this podcast available on the Wednesday that the free one doesn't appear. So sign up for £5 a month at pod.fan, P-O-D.F-A-N, to access that content, which includes the previous week's guests answering 20 bonus questions, lots of wisdom and uh, learnings to be gained from hearing that, catch-ups with former guests, occasional specials, all kinds of great content. For example... Had a great catch up with Gideon Mendel talking about his trips to Australia to uh, cover the bushfires catastrophe and his book Freedom or Death. I got Felicity Hammond on the phone recently to tell me about how the financial collapse of the Unseen Festival in Amsterdam left her and at least 25 other artists being owed money and how an open letter she wrote to the organisers was instrumental in bringing about a happy ending to that saga. And I just returned from a weekend in Mannheim in Germany where I went to check out the Biennale there featuring six separate exhibitions created by David Campany, and my report from there will also go out on the member-only feed. Some of you who are already contributing have not yet signed up at podfan.com, which means you're still giving me five quid a month without getting anything in return. So you want to be getting something in return now. Sign up for the members-only feed. This episode of the podcast... Is brought to you by the brilliant Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that is a must-have for every collection. 
Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and a print from an esteemed guest curator with free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. All that along with members only pricing in their online bookstore and more makes the Charcoal Book Club the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. I think March's book of the month, I'm pretty sure, is Centralia by Polymy Basu, who of course was previously on the podcast and I'm looking forward to getting that. I did have a little preview of that recently, but I'm really looking forward to getting that one. Also, of course, the Chico Review is coming up uh, in Montana, and I will be going to that and um, bringing a report from that, which may or may not go out on the members-only feed, but anyway, that's another thing. Looking forward to that, though. That's going to be awesome. Now, let me introduce the lovely Tom Oldham. Tom is primarily a portrait photographer, shooting famous and talented people, such as well-known musicians and sports stars, both for publications such as Mojo Magazine and for big brand commercial clients. In 2016, on the summer solstice, Tom stayed up for 40 hours and shot a portrait per hour from midnight to midnight for a project called The Longest Day. The whole process was captured in a great little short film, the link for which is in the show notes on the website. And Tom then printed it and distributed a free newspaper of the images. Uh, His personal project, The Last of the Crooners, a portrait of the Palm Tree Pub in Bow, East London, and the ageing musicians who performed there, was awarded the 2018 Sony World Photography Award for Portraits in the Professional category. Uh, his most recent project, Shoot an Arrow and Go Real High, focuses on some of the characters in the ballroom scene. One of the portraits from that project was recently featured in the Royal Photographic Society's International Photography Exhibition. So without further ado, please enjoy this chat that I had with the very lovely Tom Oldham. Oh, and by the way, just a little note. Now, Tom was recently uh, nominated for a prize in a photography competition, and he mentioned it in the interview, and then it became apparent that he shouldn't have because, you know, it's embargoed and they haven't actually announced that shortlist yet. So I just kind of bleeped it out, uh, the name of the competition, that is. So that's what's going on when you hear that happening. All right, good. Nervous, man. You're not a, nervous. No, not. Oh, yeah, I think that's okay. It's not a normal course of action, is it? This, so it no, I suppose. Well, like, well, a lot of people would be really nervous about what you do for a living, but yet you're probably so used to it that it's mm. just, it's just nothing to you to be, you know, scheduled to photograph some incredibly famous person mm. and have the responsibility of uh, delivering, mm. but. Yeah, a lot of people would be pretty terrified by that prospect. But I suppose the thing about that is that it's incremental, isn't it? It's not like you get thrown... Actually, to some extent, maybe you do get thrown in the deep end when you first start out. And, you, you know, if you... Yeah. Like I did, I used to work for Sunday Times. But those big kind of shoots that you do, mm. like some of that stuff, I've been looking at your website, and um, especially those c- commercial shoots, which end up absolutely massive yeah. on like a billboard, yeah. as big as any billboard you've ever seen. <laughs> And it's like, I think I'd really shit myself if I had to do that. <laughs> you wouldn't. You definitely wouldn't. Because you're so inside the moment when you're shooting that stuff. And you're not out there, or if you're lucky, you're not out there with your ass sort of hanging in the wind. It, there are people around you to coach you through what they want and don't want, if they know what they do want or mm. don't want. And being a sort of senior statesman in some ways of what I do... I get often get paired with quite young creatives, so consequently, they there, there can be this interesting kind of suck back 
where when it comes to the exact moment of is this right or is this wrong I look around and there's no one to be seen so it's your judgment in that is this a beautiful Mm. picture that ticks all the boxes on the brief and hopefully it is but you're right there's a sort of safety net in a way in the sense that the reason why you have all this very involved pre-production yeah. and briefs yeah. and people checking stuff off and is is to to, to guard against you know to kind mm. of inoculate you against that scenario whereby they end up going well this is we didn't want this at all you know yeah. you can't have that if you've got a massive shoot it's no. just not a, an option but you work with good team and you work with great equipment and you might try and master that as best as you can, the managing of both of those, so that in the moment you're not fingers and thumbs. You know, you're really working hard to just let your intuition guide you as to what is the right thing. And an important thing to remember, especially with commercial things like that, is that everybody around you is terrified. Mm. And that's why you have a PPPM and a PPM and a lot of discussions, and you overshoot and overshoot gigabytes of sort of data so that one's ass is well and truly covered and so is everybody else's because mm. you know even the client is terrified of their their bosses let alone the agency let alone the creatives yeah everyone you know. is basically trying to sort of not lose their job ultimately yeah. right yeah completely but then the buck stops with you in a way because if need be you're the one who's going under the bus right <laughs> yeah and they'll chuck me under the bus in short shrift uh, if it isn't right, but you don't you don't take risk with those things. You don't leave that set wondering whether you've got it. I mean, I was thinking uh, when I knew I was doing this about film and uh, how my clients used to say to me, sort of, "Did you get the shot?" Mm. And I'd always be like, "Well, yeah, probably. I, I, like I usually do, <laughs> yeah. um, unless they blinked, in which case, no." Yeah, you know. Yeah. So um, no, I remember that. Yeah, you know, I remember that very well. I, obviously, all of us of a certain age and above do remember mm. that that you know you, you don't get to to check or you didn't get to check no. i'm no, really interested no, by the, the 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 sort of renaissance of film i don't suppose even it is, is renaissance now really is it they're running side by side very successfully and um i find it really really interesting how uh, there's a perceived increased worth in stuff content not content work that's shot on film mm. um and uh, I don't miss it at all. I, no. I, I haven't shot any film for a really, you know, since I got my first digital camera, actually. Yeah. And it became work. And then, you know, the quality, that equipment just became about working and earning. And um, I miss, didn't miss the, don't miss the inconvenience Do of having to handle film. I know. And this comes up, this does come up from time to time as a subject. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether it is because we're of a certain generation where there's no romance. I mean, there is a certain romance to, you know, the darkroom and the processing and the kind of alchemy of all that. But, mm. you know, shooting on film, I mean, I remember I, we talked about this when I, when I spoke to Chris Floyd, who, you know, is very much kind of, you know, a, a sort of contemporary of yours in the sense of the sort of work that you, you do, mm. you know, you, Chris, Harry Borden, people, people like that. I was mm. kind of, you know, having this little kind of group in my head. And, um, and Chris was sort of, well, critical of, I, I don't know, he wasn't he wasn't going into one about it, but um, he was basically saying that there's a perception that if you shoot film, you've got more soul or something, you know, that, mm. and that he f- thinks that's ridiculous. And I, you know, I guess that is ridiculous. But do you think it's a sort of retro thing for, 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 for the young'uns that they feel like, you know, there's something yeah. sort of super 
I think awesome about you've got to get past analog as they call it yeah you've got to get past the initial excitement of something just having come out you know of getting an exposure on film and it looking you know usable i think Mm. I, i was in a lab richard chan the other day it was really funny to me wasn't for anyone else um this kid came in with a bag of film and said oh yeah this one i rated it at 1600 but it's a 400 but i only remembered halfway through so i changed it it's back to 400 so but the stuff i shot early was really good so what can i do about it and and straight away i was like reverse clip just reverse clip at plus two and and i was like oh yeah all that knowledge is still sort of stored away about all that beautiful uh, manipulation you can do with film and then yeah people won't even know what you're on about tom (laughs) (laughs) they will they will well actually that's that's the ironic (laughs) thing the young the youngsters more likely to know because they're like you say they're they're rocking the film yeah um yeah i don't think it matters very much uh what you're shooting on film or ditch so what have you been up to have you got was there an, an announcement or something well, yeah, I'm very excited to be on the short list for the next... And uh, honestly, when I used to walk around, I would look at those pictures and think, I have never shot anything that could stand up against this stuff. Because it's all right to do a series and put in a body of work, and I think you can hit one tone with that. But to capture people's attention with one picture, mm. I really admire. And mm. I'm a very... I'm super, super chuffed. There's a colossal volume of people that enter that competition, especially in the portraits category. And to be in the top 10 of that is a lovely feeling, you know. And last time I saw you was at the RPS. Yeah, the Royal Photographic Society. Yeah, which uh, I'm in with a different project this year, which is a really lovely feeling too. And I really enjoyed that. I was Mm. really proud to be part of that. Mm. Um, There's some really challenging work in there, which I thought was really interesting this year. Yeah, it was. And uh, you had a single image um, from a project which... I think you're probably quite excited about quite a new thing. Yeah. Well, we could talk about it. We could talk about it. Maybe we'll talk about it later. Hmm. Um, but it's interesting that you say that about not feeling like you've ever shot anything of that kind of caliber because you've been doing that stuff for a long time. And, you know, portraiture is very much your wheelhouse. Yeah. Yes. I don't know how to answer that. I would look at the it's quite techniquey sometimes and there's a skills level that people use with their portraits whereas my my approach is very straightforward and it's about an engagement and in an interaction with the subject whoever that might be and to try in the very limited time window i have to try and capture something of worth in the exchange that we enjoy you know and we have a very small window with these people to capture something that will run full page in a beautiful music magazine you know and to have come away with something that was good enough for the magazine i think is a feat in Mm. itself let alone um to get something that will do well in a competition so I'm, i'm i'm really flattered by that yeah yeah um i feel like i should fill in the blanks because I want to find out how you got to where you have got to, which is basically that you've been, like you say, for over 20 years, you've been doing sort of high profile portrait editorial shoots and and also commercial work. But how did you first get into photography then? Um, I had a really boring job. I was working, living in Bournemouth, and I was working in a clothes shop. Mm. Was that Um, a post school or something? 
Well, I had a sort of few fumbled attempts at sort of further education, which didn't go great. And I had a Saturday job in a clothes shop for, to get discount in a sort of, you know, trying to look all right. And it, <laughs> and it was quite a high profile sort of gig at the time, working in a clothes shop yeah. in the late 80s, believe it or not. And, um, but I could well see my future sort of turning into, I did their like junior management program and I can't believe that we, this was not a dynamic sort of listen that your readers will be eagerly subscribing to <laughs> this part of the story. But, um, anyway, yeah, I had a close, I had a job in a clothes shop and for my 21st birthday, I wanted a watch and the, the girlfriend I had at the time said, um, why don't you get a camera? Like that's how photography walked into my life. So I didn't come from art or any cameras in our household. There was no, um, you know, I had a beautiful, loving home and everything, but no money or mm. that kind of resource. So it was um, a rural sort of a childhood. Yeah, yeah. I was in um, a village called Moor Critchell in Dorset, mm. population sort of nine. Yeah. So pretty skint kind of very yeah. upbringing. Yeah. yeah. Which is going to become relevant. Uh, uh, later on in in our chat because I, I want to talk to you about you know the way in which that sort of informed your mm. your ethos in a way yeah. but um but yeah so that girlfriend was um you know in on reflection a hugely kind of influential well uh, it was you a, know it was a bit of a snap moment. a snap decision really i'm sure a snap decision oh god uh, oh. sorry everyone That's again okay. um we'll keep that in apology number two um and uh I think she liked the idea of going out with, with a photographer and mm. being photographed, I'm sure. But it was, um, I, it soon became apparent that that was my ticket and that this thing could sprout wings and get me out of this, what looked like a pretty predictable path, to be honest. So I did a night class at Shelley Park in Bournemouth and then got in, didn't get into Bournemouth, but got into Plymouth, Plymouth College of Art um, to do a BTEC national diploma, two-year mm. thing. And that was in 1992 for two years. And the best thing that happened there really was while I passed my course and all that, um, because I had some retail experience, it, they allowed me to work in the store and the, the equipment store and shop at the college once I finished my course, because I was in no way ready to go and be a photographer at that point at all. Everything in my life has just happened really slowly. And I worked in the college handing out equipment all day and larger equipment, Hasselblads, manual Nikons, uh, Broncolor lighting, all that kind of stuff, and slowly got to grips with what being a photographer looks like. Seeing all the students work, then I became a technician and was mixing up the C41 and E6 and handling, you know, the ID11 mixer. And it just... I soon learned what, what what I needed to do, what I needed to know. And, and and again, under that sort of safe umbrella of a full-time job in an art college, I was um, then started shooting for local publications and just trying to use that to get into music gigs, to shoot gigs, try and get portraits backstage or what have you, and just kind of force an angle for what I could do, how I could maybe start working. And it all tends to happen around your passion. And my passion at that point was music and dance and rave and that mm. kind of stuff so that's how that was really really emerging as a scene and that was my first sort of entry point into professional photography I suppose just getting published mm. so you were doing that stuff off your own bat but then how, what were the sort of first breaks in terms of people actually using the pictures then well that that, that that was really interesting how it all sort of 
Because I was down in Plymouth, which nobody would call the cultural epicentre mm. of this country. So that is um, on the... Um, where is Plymouth? On the um, <laughs> south coast. Southwest. Yeah, southwest, southwest coast. It's just yeah, on the I border to, of Cornwall. I have to think about my listeners in Albuquerque and uh, Kansas City ah. uh, in terms of the geography. Well, the Americans so, will know where Plymouth is. Yeah, the Americans yeah. will know where Plymouth is. Very true. <laughs> yes, that's where it all started. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, sorry, carry on. No, not at all. Um, I started contributing to local magazines just for the hustle, really, just to get the access. And it soon became apparent, again, that access was the key thing that would enable me to, um, using publications to garner the access I needed to get in front of the people I really wanted to shoot. And that really uh, escalated really, really well. Uh, and also, I sort of connected with magazines in London, that London, that um, could that needed sort of representation in other parts of the country, so they'd have a photographer in the southwest if there was jobs and things like that. So um, I also hooked up with a, a student who was connected to publishers. Who we we started a sort of magazine that was for sale in W H Smiths, and again that spat me out there in terms of portfolio material and shooting portraits. I was their photographer at large, and it only ma- managed like eleven issues over sort of two or three years, but it was glossy and good quality and it's called level magazine and it was a beautiful looking thing but again it just everything my whole career has just been one click higher just get it one click further up the ladder Mm -hmm. and that really helped with that and while I was shooting that I started shooting for this magazine called Sleaze Nation which I just absolutely worshipped and what I'd do was shoot while I was out shooting other assignments I'd put in a roll of black and white and just shoot kind of clubbing lifestyle shots um, on the grimy, seedier side of things. Um, and I'd just send them rolls of film un, um, unprocessed. They would process them in London and I would have to go to WH Smith's on this certain date to see if they had used my pictures or not. Right. And genuinely, the most exciting moment was when they used this shot I'd taken on Brighton Beach of these two naked guys that had run in the sea. He used it as their opener for the Savoir Vivre section, which was the clubbing section. And it was full page, full bleed and of two willies. And I just, that was as close to sort of perfection as I had aimed for and I'd succeeded it. And it really, that feeling really pushed me on. Yeah, that must have felt amazing. It really did. It really did. It was really significant. And I just thought, right, this is what I want to do. It's what I've got to do. Yeah. It is quite special when you start when you first see your your print mm. pictures in in print. Yeah. So what happened? What happened then? Because, like, I guess there came a point when you shifted over to portraiture. I did shift to portraiture because uh, the Level magazine started, and I moved to Brighton from Plymouth, uh, where I lived for sort of nine years or so, and. Um, but I was 29 at that point. So that's 1999. Uh, I was 29 and it didn't seem appropriate to be the sort of chubby dad at the disco forever. Mm. So um, I wanted to shift towards um, doing more jobs, slightly trying to get away from music because it didn't scream of earning lots of money, staying with just within music or certainly shooting live music and portraiture looked as though it had a great deal more longevity and you know I will be satisfied when I photographed every single face in the world you know so um it's I was never going to run out of subjects you know did you 
make a sort of conscious effort then at that point to sort of build relationships and and kind of create you know opportunities like how did you go about doing that um the whole thing it's not just about being able to do your job as a photographer it's about relationship management really mm. and getting close producing beautiful work and getting close to people that that can see it and can action it and what i was doing at that point was in I kind of did this shift from uh, this is not the coolest thing, but shift sort of keeping with publications and magazines, but also towards PR and brands. So I found out you can get 250 quid shooting for a magazine or 750 quid doing exactly the same thing. If you get that logo in over there yeah, right. and um, that became again, great access, great money, and it, there was a huge amount of interest at that time in sort of branded music and to attach yourself to the agencies where I could sort of shoot that for people became really not not lucrative but it, it set me up certainly mm. um and so I was I was doing quite a lot of that kind of stuff but also shooting editorial portraits and enjoying the mix that I still enjoy now really of just not being that defined by one thing in particular and just trying to have as broad a reach as possible in what I do. And so like, um, like in terms of learning the ropes, did you, like you hadn't come from an assisting background. So obviously you'd already just figured stuff out for yourself, but did mm. you, did you set about kind of, uh, learning how to light stuff and all that, or, or did it just kind of, no, I, don't, I don't mean, I don't, I don't mind saying I was really terrified of lighting for too long. Mm. I think it, um, is something I really regret that I didn't get on top of that sooner and that I didn't put in the hours to get on top of the technical so that your ideas could just flow. And I, yeah, that was a mistake. And may, I don't know whether that relates to the fear of sort of what shooting film um, meant in terms of expense, the mm. experimenting with film, but just getting on top of the craft. You know, I, I, I was really about sculpting versions of flash on camera really or flash off camera mm. without it being going into studio lighting but eventually i sort of got on top of that as i had to and gingerly took steps to sort of master not master but practically implement studio lighting mm. but it was i was too slow with it and i should i should have been braver mm. do you remember the point at which you kind of realized that you know it was untenable to kind of carry on yeah. Not knowing that stuff. Yeah, that's really. <laughs> so I had taken an Arri 800 lighting kit to shoot this portrait of the first cover of Level magazine. And it was with the Nina Person from the Cardigans. And we were in this hotel suite where we had one hour for interview and photos. Um, when I'd driven up from Plymouth to uh, Kensington Garden Hotel, I think it was. And... I went. I took this kit into the hotel, hotel suite, went to start setting it up, and it had, this is slightly a step away from your question, but mm. um, it uh, had round pin plugs in this yeah. hotel to stop Burks like me coming up and plugging in sort of 2,400 watts of lighting probably. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, it, that was like pure terror, like how are we going to do this? It was February, it was sort of mid-afternoon, and... I was shooting on a film Hasselblad and by some pure act of maybe professionalism now I think about it I brought with me a newly brought out film Ilford Delta 3200 in medium format 
and I had a small window that looked, when I think about it now, it was like a porthole, but it was just enough light to uh, get a portrait. And I put this film in, and I only had two rolls of it, and we got this shot without my, using my lighting. Mm. And it caused so much, it caused me so much stress in that yeah, period. Yeah. And I just thought, this is absolutely no good. I've got to be able to act on a higher level than this. Mm, and, right, right. That you needed uh, to be more professional, really more prepared. just prepared and slicker and more knowledge and, and practically more knowledge as well. Just being able to look at a situation, read it and work out your how you make your pictures in any scenario. Mm. I mean, have you sort of attempted in a way to create your own sort of signature style or, or or do you prefer to 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 not do that in some some way? Um, do you think I've got a signature style? No, I don't think you have, and I I think that's deliberate. Um, I think one can be really defined in both a really positive and a negative way mm. by having a signature style, and we all enjoy some heyday with it, where everybody loves your style. And then expect some cold wilderness years where people don't like your style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think being able to shoot studio, being able to I, I haven't got jobs before because people said, Yeah, there's not enough black and white on your site. Right. And it's right. like so you just want a photographer that just shoots Peter Limburg, you know, that just shoots yeah. black and white, you know. And I was really disappointed by the lack of sort of willingness with that brief that I was reject cruelly rejected for. Um and uh but I, I really deliberately to spread yourself quite broadly, location, studio, black and white color, you know, like not heavily retouched, but heavily graded and um, not and, and some quite straight, straight and flat, you know, mm, mm. I think is um, I, I'm, I really love photography and I'm really interested in it. And to just define yourself to one look, I think could get very boring very yeah, quickly. Yeah. yeah. If you've got a certain sort of lighting setup and you just fall back on that, I mean, it seems oh, to me man. that you, you really do have a command over all that now. There's no question about it. And you know, I like the way that you've, you move from one style, um, from Thanks, one man. sort of look to another, from one aesthetic to another. So, um, the whole thing about shooting kind of super high profile celebrities is, is sort of endlessly interesting to people on one level, but, then on another level, well, it's like actually that you're talking about the cardigans uh, mm. woman. Didn't she get have a go at you for sort of uh, yeah. having the uh, sort of temerity to uh, try and engage <laughs> her in some kind of conversation? Because was, I think, you know, you're all about, mm. I think you've said that, you know, that, that just being a friendly, nice kind of human being is sort of un- underrated as a, as a kind of character, as a, as a characteristic. But then at the same time, the talent is not your friend, right? Yeah. So, so but how do you find the balance, though, between those two? those two things because it's almost uh you yeah. know those two things are kind of mutually exclusive in a way yeah how do you find the balance between those two things i think jane bound described it perfectly as just being able to create an environment where people give portraits rather than you take portraits mm. and that's been like a real learning for me that just make your subject feel as comfortable as possible and also with people that are famously hard work i am so nauseatingly nice right <laughs> like i'm so sickeningly agreeable with them not in a creepy way just like in to get the job done that when i push for that extra thing that i really want they're going to look like real bastards if they don't let me mm, that's and- really smart actually because those kind of people in a way they want they kind of somehow get off on 
the reaction that they get from being just arseholes. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So if you just respond by just yeah. being incredibly nice, yeah. it's almost like they don't know where to go with that. That's right. It magnifies how horrible they're being <laughs> yeah. because in contrast to your niceness, you know. And why, and then, you, not to be an amateur psychologist, but why are they being like that? Probably because they're afraid mm. and nervous mm. or tense or... They used to be treated, if they used to be really famous and now they're slightly less famous, they're, they're sort of in a scummy studio in East London with me and it's not how it used to be. So we try and tend to that and make people comfortable and warm and, you know, as though we've made some kind of effort, regardless of whether there's a budget or not to do that. And it tends to pay off. Mm. I can think I've diffused quite a few sort of situations positively like that just by being sort of so nice can you can you think of an example um yeah i can but it would be so supremely unprofessional for me to name them oh okay well that's fine it just just don't name them then okay well we 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 shot a very famous singer from the 1960s who's a famous sort of toxic no, actually, I thought of a better one. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> no, go on. Um, Ginger Baker. Okay, but he's but he's so notoriously arsehole that it's that it's that he's a kind of cliche of himself in a way. But yeah, go on. Tell me about Ginger Baker. <clears throat> well, the young ones won't even know who he is. He, he was a very famous musician. No, back he in uh, the 60s. invented rock drumming. Right. Yeah, he was in Cream. He was in Cream with Eric Clapton. Quite an extraordinary musician. was hugely influenced by African drumming yeah. and had experience of that, but also had the technique of a jazz drummer, which is the perfect storm, if you like. Yeah. And uh, he invented rock drumming and um, brought the heaviness big time. But he was also a drug addict and famously angry and bitter man from the age of six when his dad went to war and didn't come back, I think. Mm. And... Um, he was, yeah, fair enough. Like, you understand why. So I was like, I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get what I want. And But he was not well when I photographed him. And I think he lived in a sort of permanent state of ill health for quite a long time. And uh, he... <laughs> I was so nice to him, man. But we I, somehow we got... The, the interviewer, of course, um, we, he didn't do as we had agreed, which was like he was going to interview for 50 minutes, then I'd have my photo shoot, then he'd finish up the interview for another 50 minutes in our two-hour slot. He talked and talked and talked for an hour and three quarters, and then was so exhausted by the time it was, came to the photos, he was like, oh, do we have to do it? I can't be, I don't want to do it. And it's like, oh, I was only taking, I, I had a few different setups in mind, and I was like, if I get more than 15 frames out of this, then there's just no chance. It's like, anyway... Somehow made him laugh, and we got some lovely portraits of dear Ginger Baker, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief that we were just going to be able to do this because it was a big score to get the interview. This was for Mojo again. And then uh, we packed down, got out. I said to his wife, um, is it okay if we just load out the front door? She said, yeah. And all that time we'd been sort of waiting to photograph Ginger Baker. His Dalmatian had been a real, like those dogs that sniff, and like just get in the way and it, it, it was really energized jakey i remember his name <laughs> um energized dalmatian and uh anyway uh we loaded up the car i went to say ginger baker thank you so much we've really appreciated your time we love meeting you been such an icon for so long and just thank you so much for your for today and by the way the dog's out front 
Um, and he went, what? And he had been, he had been parallel in a lazy boy armchair for the two hours. He leapt out of there like Usain Bolt. He said, you've let the bloody dog out, you bloody idiot. And um, I was like, uh, what? But your wife said, and she's obviously nowhere to be seen. And he's running out. To, he's running outside suddenly to go and find his dog. And I was like, Christ, if I've killed Ginger Baker's dog, like, this is horrific. And he, um, I looked, I got out. I got out there really quickly and saw my assistant smiling, which could only mean that someone had found the dog. And uh, his neighbour had dragged the dog back to, to him. Ginger grabbed it, looked at me, said, you are a bloody idiot, and slammed the door in my face. <laughs> and and uh, it was really like, yeah, okay, it doesn't, yeah. Al- doesn't always work. <laughs> but you got the shot, that was the most important oh, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, it seems like, yeah, like you say, I mean, notoriously like that. Well, you mentioned Usain Bolt. You've shot him quite a couple yeah. of times. He, he seems he seems like he's all right. I mean, um, was he like mostly these people are just professionals, right? Yeah, I mean, they, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and and that's what we have to respect about them that they might not want to do it, but they know they have to. And it's about smoothing that process. And in respect of no, nobody wants to be photographed. So few people. Mm. I have chosen something that you know, career wise, that nobody really likes. You know, it's. <laughs> Like being a policeman, probably. I don't know. But um, uh, Usain Bolt is supremely professional and is also, is also respectful of the fact that if you're in the room, there's probably a good reason why you're there and it's probably because you're good at your job. So if you're good at your job, then um, let's do it. That's, mm. you know, yeah, that's, let's that's get, why you're there. Yeah, you you know. it's kind of it's a collaboration. Yeah. You photograph Paul Weller. I'd be quite fascinated to meet him. But then, mm. you know, you, I think it comes back to that whole thing. You know, they're, they're just people in the end, you know, and that's what I think when you photograph a few celebs, <sighs> you kind of end up, that's the, that's the ultimate kind of conclusion, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am really lucky in the work that I do for Mojo magazine that a lot of these people are very, have been very famous for a very long time. And therefore have a respect nine times out of ten they have a respect that that it's that that they know the job they know what you need to do it's about making it as painless as possible and i'm i'm my motto in life is no pain no pain Mm. so i i really do my utmost to just oh you know because if i'm going to be in the room with paul weller again in a year's time i don't want to think oh here's that toilet from (laughs) you know that we did that shoot the shots are fine but he's like a rotter you know so um I'm really, really, I'm quite sweary naturally, Ben. I'm really trying not to swear. You're raining so, yourself so my, in, I appreciate So my that. kids can... Don't worry. Oh, yeah, you, your, your kids might want to my listen to this. My kids might want to listen to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm notoriously... Uh, I know, potty-mouthed. Yeah, but not so much on the podcast. I try and rain that in as well. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So now, you, you do, you do always pursue your own personal projects alongside mm. these these commitments and i think that's that's kind of you know important for for a lot of people um tell me about this new one you've got going on because i think i saw you quite recently uh as we said at the beginning at uh, an exhibition that you had a print at just a one image it was a portrait it was the royal photographic society um what, what was the name of the collective project oh the international photography Ex- exhibition IPE. Right. IPA, inter, yeah, yeah. And um, I think the oldest uh, photography so. exhibition there, yeah. like from the 18-something 18, 18 yeah. it began. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so tell me about but tell me about your personal project um, that you had a print 
from in that show um so that's called shoot an arrow and go real high which is the last line pretty much of the film paris is burning which is the anchor point for the ballroom scene as it's known um also like vogue by madonna is very much spat out as a uh moment in voguing which is the dance form of the ballroom scene and it's ballroom as in voguing rather than ballroom as in strictly mm. so this is a scene that i've been photographing for the last sort of two or three years or so uh and um shoot turning up at events they have ballroom events where there's a runway and one way catwalk and this particular voguing dance in its many beautiful formats is performed in front of a panel of judges with a crowd and it's fiercely competitive but also an incredibly positive supportive environment uh, for the lgbtqia plus scene Mm. um community rather and uh it's work i've really really enjoyed doing and i've been turning up there with a portrait set up and in paris and new york and a couple of times in london and shooting portraits of scene members and so how did that come about what was the sort of initial kind of kernel of an idea this fantastic photographer called david morrison um came in to see me at one of my exhibitions the herder boys of lesotho and uh very much against protocol started showing me his work (laughs) uh and normally that would be like quite eye-rolly but um actually i was really intrigued and I was like, that's really beautiful. Like, what? what is this? And he explained about the scene and that he was he very much shoots live shots from this these events. And he said, there's one on Saturday. You could come and shoot portraits if you like. And and that's such a red rag to a ball when it, when it, if it, comes, to, when it comes to me. There's somebody saying, I can get you in. I can just secure all your access and you can just shoot portraits. And um, I was like, okay, that sounds good. Mm. And I did shoot and it was like, like, behind the velvet ropes like peering behind the curtain at a complete world that i had no idea about at all and that's been existing very perfectly without my attention thanks very much you Mm -hmm. know for quite a few decades and i just thought i'd love to do more of this and not long after that i won the um, sony world photography award portrait category which enabled me to apply for a sony grant and they which I won uh, on by proposing this uh, project, and that oh, cool. that gave me, I think it was Alice Tomlinson won one as well. She mentioned it, mm. and uh, that gave me seven thousand dollars, which was just sort of enough to get the project rolling, really, and to go to New York and shoot there, and take David with me, and he he'll very much smooth my path through it. And so he's brilliant. part of that community, as it were. He's yeah. very much yeah, very involved much. with it. Yeah. And it's been a, a, a tremendous support through this through this yeah, process. Yeah, and now you said that you know, although it's sort of uh, something we don't normally uh, admit to. You you were saying that you know you you had a strong feeling that this was the best thing you'd ever done, maybe. Yeah. And I was just curious as to why or how. Well, in relation to self doubt, what I've learned is for all the times I've had crushing self doubt, it hasn't actually got me anywhere having self-doubt and it really undermines your own processes and just causes huge amounts of sort of mental stress and that every single listener of this if they're photographers will have suffered and I'm sure in lots of other ways and I, I just feel as though maybe I'm not overconfident about it I just thought who wants to hear about crushing self-doubt actually isn't it better just to say 
this is some beautiful, incredible, astonishing people that I've been able to shoot portraits with and we've done them in a beautifully lit setup on show days at a ball when they look amazing. Mm. And what to me, that's absolute perfection. And they've been incredibly well retouched. Um, so they look really even as a series, as a, as a body of work. I've got about 130 portraits and I'm going to find it really hard to have to edit that. Mm. And I'm hopefully in the format I'd like to display it in, I won't have to edit it at all. We can use every single one of them, you know. And it comes to a sort of larger point, I suppose, about really believing in your own work and that none of it actually really matters mm. that much. Mm. And... Who really cares? And everyone's so rightfully or wrongly self-absorbed anyway. What does it matter if I'm having a wobble and a doubt about what I feel about something? You know, really, what does it matter? So surely it's more advantageous just to get the fuck on with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> but what, what do you think, what is it about this project that's kind of, that makes you feel so... I mean, maybe you've already answered it. I don't know, but I'm just thinking that, you know, yeah, it's one way of answering it, but is it that you just feel like you've executed it really well? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was, it's a very straightforward proposition and it's shining a light on beautiful people that maybe don't have enough understanding. And, and, and I just feel ethically it's spot on. Uh, aesthetically, I've nailed it and I can't wait to throw it out into the world and and mm. allow people a little more understanding maybe i don't know if yeah, that yeah. sounds sort of no. righteous i hope not but it just it no it sounds exactly like it you know one would expect it to sound when you're talking about a personal project that yeah. you know kind of care about and yeah. that you stumbled upon um, by kind of luck and then yeah. went and did and you sort of kind of it was almost what i suppose what would you call it almost like a quite a low-key kind yeah. of lighting you went for quite a sort of subdued kind yeah. of a, a, an, yeah. an effect Did, was that a kind of considered decision from the start yeah very much so yeah just to try and invite the viewer in and for it you know the obvious thing to do would be to blast it with flash and it black and white say mm. on a white background mm. that would be the straightforward approach but to try and attempt something a bit more nuanced with lighting and tone it down so the viewers really got to look into it to see these beautiful people um is i think this is a slightly more intelligent approach to i don't know that's just waffle really sorry i don't know <laughs> no, it's, it's like yeah i can't put it you've got to see the pictures and then you'll yeah, know yeah but yeah and as usual we're talking about you know here we are on um on an audio podcast you know talking about sure yeah a visual medium and that is part of the joke um, obviously <laughs> my listeners are familiar with but they can also um uh, well you know seek it out and find and find the images yeah. when they do eventually surface and what are you intending yeah. to do like ideally would it be an exhibition or are you going to make a book or you know, is there a plan it, it won't be a book no i don't think anyway i have a proposal document which if there's any senior brand people listening to this they're very welcome to have access to um <laughs> which is a uh, proposal to create an environment in an exhibition space which is very much akin to the ballroom experience. So there'll be a catwalk, you'll walk up the catwalk, and all on both sides of that catwalk there'll be um, video screens in portrait, so LCD screens in portrait um, showing the images sort of pulsing 
um, so that you can move along and see on screens, which will really, really benefit the low lit. The low lit portraiture will really sing through on a backlit screen, mm, mm. and that is the perfect format. And then we don't have to, and, and it also removes that like print behind glass in a frame maybe 12 to 15 of them, you know, yeah, yeah. and everyone get together for a drinks thing. And we've commissioned some video. So there'll be video playing to introduce you to the movement and the characters and then audio from an event as well. So you will get onto the catwalk and it's really low lit. You get to see the characters in their perfect state and you're hearing the music of people walking along the catwalk as well. So it's quite immersive and also that there'll be talks and interactive elements. So really, my bit of it is, it's not really, wow, a Tom Oldham photography showcase. It's a ballroom scene mm-hmm. showcase. And we'd have a ball to launch it. And like I said, talks and about the fashions, the dance, the history. It's incredibly um, rich in terms of its um, experience, sort of sadly and wonderfully mm. at the same time. Well, that'd be amazing. Let's hope that happens yeah, then. Yeah. So you just need the financial support or that'd be the, nice. the set, setting for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But that's good that that, that came out of the Sony um, grant, as yeah, you say. Yeah, um, And you won for a project which you shot here in London, which is um, the, the Last of the Crooners, which yeah. was um, in your local pub. In my local pub. Um, and that, again, it wasn't... It was. It's not like you don't really have a sort of documentary approach. Everything is like you. You will like it's a shoot, right? You know, yeah. like even if it's real people, like yeah. you will you will set it up. Yeah. And again, I think the, the importance of the preparation it kind of comes back to that quite often, doesn't it? But um, just tell me a little bit about that project then. Well, I had done sort of fifteen or sixteen years of research at that pub. Yeah. Um, many pints drunk. Many and. Uh, always blown away by its uh genuine experience there that it every friday saturday and sunday night the uh music were these really old boy and old girl crooners and proper jazz not like uh karaoke or anything like that singing from the sort of book of standards and um i just there was a sort of a th- kind of it felt like a kind of threat came up to the pub that it wasn't going to be there forever and i just i knew them and asked them if they would be happy for me to come and shoot some portraits and just kind of document a bit of the some of the characters there and we set up a shoot and brought them in brought them in over a, a one and a half days and took over the main bar and we did portraits of everyone just around against the beautiful wallpaper this is the palm tree pub in bow in uh, east london and uh, for for the last 42 years or something, they've had this music every single weekend. And um, it's dying out. And it's dying out because trends change, change and the scene has changed. And locally, um, incredible transformations have occurred in East London in that period. And um, this is the kind of... The, along Roman Road, there would have been... Every single pub would have had these singers in at one point. And now there's just the palm tree left. And they, they, they granted me access, which was incredibly flattering to do. And uh, we created some really beautiful portraits with it. A nice, just short little film. And um, it was very much a portrait shoot. It's probably important to note rather than a documentary shoot. So mm. I hadn't been in there for years with my Leica. Yeah. Something, you know, <laughs> it was um, just shot in a day and a half. Yeah. But what came off the back of that was that um, 
right before it was honestly everyone was in bed it was 11 p.m in my house and it was the last hour before the closing day of the sony world photography awards and i dragged and dropped and wrote some sort of bodged captions at best like Mm. slack late night like oh i don't know that'll do and sent it off and then you get this phone call you know but so like why were you so last minute with it like why what what was the what was the 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 reluctance to to sort of be all in with your um entry it's almost like you know there was some part of you that didn't want to enter at all that's really interesting That's, that's a great question um the not entering means that you don't get rejected. Right, right. And yeah. I didn't want this project that I really, really loved to be tarnished by a rejection when I really believed in it and I was really, really proud of it. Not so much so that I think thought I'd win or anything like that. It was just what I had on my desktop that I could drag and drop for mm. this competition, you know, because you get that 24 hours to go reminder. And I was like, what have I got that I can enter? And there's a really important balance in that, I think, that, I love this project. Do I want it to be tainted with the misery of failure and losing, you know? (laughs) And thankfully they saw something in it that, um, you know, I, I I think what they saw was that um, I knew the subject really well. And Mm. it's weird that I get to shoot things that from all over the world, you know, we travel all over the place all the time. And the thing I won biggest for was the thing 500 yards from my house. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so um, we just got the tone of the lighting right, the balance in that, the retouch, the feel of it was really reminiscent. There's a lot of stakeholders when you do a project like that, from the artist that you're shooting to the landlord and landlady and the regulars and the hipsters that go there, They, mm. as well as what I want and what I think I should be achieving, you know, and it's getting that tone right is quite a delicate balance, you know. And uh, I feel as though I did hit that right. And it was it's very reminiscent for a lot of people of that old school feel of an English boozer, an East End boozer. And yeah, I think it just, that was recognised, which was mm. a lovely feeling. Yeah, and then so you did actually win, which like, I guess is the, you know, the learning there is, if, you, if you're wondering about whether to enter or not, and just enter for Christ's sake. I mean, I get what you're saying, and I suppose it's about trying to be uh, objective enough in the sense that you're you're going to somehow decide to not worry about whether it you know gets chosen or not, right? Yeah, that's the sort of. Yeah. But that's easy said and done. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I heard you say that you know it had a major impact on your career, but you're already very well established in your career. So I was quite surprised in a way. What, what in what in what way did it? Well, like like, like sort of like I said at the beginning, like getting published in Sleaze Nation for that full page, it raises you one click higher. Mm. And you know, look at the astonishing success that Alice Tomlinson has sort of enjoyed off the back of a Sony win. It really magnified that project. Mm. And a lot of people have got a lot of criticism about competition, but I feel that at a time when, say, documentary photography, there's so few outlets for good projects, maybe competitions is that outlet now for Mm. proper, serious work. And the bravery around some of the selections that, and it's quite a topical subject right now, but that Sony put in that competition, I think, is is really notable and admirable. Um, And it's become a credible outlet. And paid-for competitions is... A question we have to ask ourselves is it worth it will you get the reward from it but sony is free to enter 
Yeah, that's the, the the distinction right there because, like you say, there is a lot of talk around, you know, the ethics of having these paid for mm. um, competitions. If it's just a cynical attempt to create revenue, yeah, then what's in it for the poor fuckers who are you know spending yeah. their hard earned yeah. uh, money in the hope that they'll have their project recognised? Yeah, and you know, then there's just a whole bunch of questions about. Well, which we've kind of almost, in a way, touched upon is that who's to say that those people's, you know, that opinion, the opinion of that set of mm. people, is that going to damn your project for eternity? That you're yeah. going to think, oh, maybe I'm, maybe it's no good then. Mm. So there's mm. all sorts of stuff around that. But like you say, if it's free to enter, it's free to enter. I mean, you yeah. know, yeah. More, what more do you need to say about yeah. it? But um, and it's very high profile. It's beautiful. The awards yeah, evening yeah. is incredible. Yeah, Alice was talking about it. Oh man, it's Shit. so bright lights. You know, yeah, like proper West End business. And but to have a show at Somerset House for two weeks, that's a nice feeling. That's during Photo London. In, no, in it's, just, it's just before. Actually. Oh, they, just they're, they're a bit dedicated to, to Sony. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, it happens in the same venue because people will hopefully have heard some of my previous forays mm. into. Photo London for the yeah. podcast, but it's a thing that happens in in May here in, in G- early summer, yeah. and uh, yeah, the 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 Sony thing Just happens yeah that. immediately before it yeah. yeah. Oh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was this um, brilliant uh, photo books for schools thing you did, which oh, yeah. which you did off your own, basically yeah. off your own bat. You did something quite amazing in the end. Maybe <laughs> you didn't expect uh, it to be so amazing, but tell us about um, what that was and how you got the, the initial kind of idea for doing it. Well, I am a bit of a lefty. Yeah. Uh, I. That just means you give a shit, basically. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think you can say only lefties give a shit because we have to be fairly moderate in that. But, yeah, no, I'm not. Um, no, that's a. Yeah, but, that's a. But I do give a shit. I do mm. give a shit, and. Um, I went to a state school in Dorset that had very little resource and I went to see a friend of mine who works at another school in Dorset uh, just I just to do a talk at his um and show some work and to meet their photography students and while I was there he told me that they have 1 pound 85 per student per year to spend on art and you know, we, we come from like commercial shoots where there'll be a producer at the beginning of the day saying, we need 10 mahogany tables, you know, and then at 6 p.m. it's like, does anybody want a mahogany table? Because it's like, we're going to just trash them, you know. And it's like, yeah, there's so much money wasted in a huge section of what I do, I suppose, that um, I just found it an outrage that we're not investing. What kind of society doesn't invest in education and doesn't invest in art education? So... I was really frustrated by this. I came home and emptied loads of books off my shelves that were just jewellery, really. They were just adorning my shelves to make me look cool. And I thought, I can't be the only person that has this. So I just used the wonderful power of beautiful social media to um, reach out to a few photographers that I know. And it really took off. People were really kind. And I got in about 500 books. That's amazing, really. Yeah, from all over. And it... um, really escalated to you know the photographers gallery helped uh bjp were amazing and gave me loads of books and i knew they were all sitting somewhere you know all this Mm. stuff was sitting somewhere but loads of just beautiful photographers came out with one two or a big pile and just heroes of mine like 
Giles Dooley and Derek Ridges and just great people came forward with books for me. And we put them all in a great big pile, divided them by two and delivered them in a transit van to two schools in Dorset, my old school in Wimborne and this uh, friend of mine's school in Bournemouth. And it hasn't really stopped. I've done three more schools since and delivered them sort of mini libraries. I did one two weeks ago um, down in Earlsfield. And it's this beautiful, calming experience that people come in and see all these books and then just gather around and slowly open books and the tactile nature of a book means it's a different kind of learning to screen learning and they set up projects around them and just there as a resource and it's really nice to be able to say to sort of 16 year old GCSE students or A-level students like there's a really good chance that all the answers to everything you know are sat on this table right now when it comes to photography anyway Mm -hmm. and I really believe in the power of the book. And so I've set up this thing called Creative Corners and it's got a website, creativecorners.uk. And you can have a little investigate on there and get in touch if you want. Have some photography books that you don't really want anymore. Mm. And you could clear your shelves and just like, you know... Because like you say, yeah, most of us do have, because even if you've got a relatively small selection, you know, there's always going to be stuff in there that, you know, you bought kind of perhaps, you know on an impulse which mm. actually isn't your thing or whatever and you know it's not worth anything so yeah. why not you know do some good with it yeah. i mean it's it's an amazing thing to imagine that you know somewhere in one of these classes there'll be some kid who uh is going to get massively influenced by one of those yep. books that your kind of generous um donors gave yeah and uh you, you don't know, know where the lightning's going to strike yeah you, from, some, from where some, it's going to come some famous photographer you know to be uh, might be in one of those classrooms yeah. uh, discovering, you know, the Americans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's beautiful. I love the idea of that. I love the idea that, um, you know, someone's, someone saw a thing that I was doing. They got off their ass, came to London with a rucksack of books. I met them. They gave them to me. I distributed them. And then, you know, that lovely chain of events that could have really influenced somebody's life. And... Just that, and there's we get all kinds of really odd donations, you know, with it that are not straightforward propositions at all. And I love that that could encourage photographers to think in young photographers to think in different ways to inspire them from stuff that they just wouldn't normally see. You know, some of these kids have never seen photo photo books. You know, they don't have them at home, so where would they see them? The schools can't afford them. Yeah, they can't buy a forty quid book. No, so. And it's the always, as it always is, it's the teachers subsidising this. It's them buying books when they come to London and go to a show and they bring it back and they put, don't take it into their own homes, they take it to school. And it just seems so grossly unfair. Mm. Amazing. So it's an act, a reaction to that. Yeah. That is an absolutely brilliant thing and um, you should be um, um, commended for doing it, even Thank though, you. you know, like, of course you, you didn't, you know, it was just a kind of a one of those things where you just it was a whim almost or it was uh something that you just figured why not give this a go and see what happens mm-hmm. and and it was just uh, i guess it was extraordinarily um successful well I, th- I think just on that people are frustrated about the state of things but also don't always know what they can do yeah and to make that really easy and i put in loads of legwork but it didn't cost loads of money to no. do i put in a lot of legwork and it was a lovely focus for a while as it still is. And I've got Lucy Burton helping me now achieve more with it. So, you know, I'm hoping it rolls out. Brilliant. I'll put a link to that website on Beautiful. your on uh, in the show notes. 
So uh, what, the only other thing I wanted to ask you about was this project you did called The Longest Day. Oh, God. Now, now <laughs> like, I've, we've all had this idea of uh, on the longest day of the year. Mm. I don't know why, but you start to think, now that's, maybe I should be out shooting. You know, maybe there's, well, just to use that mm. as an excuse almost. But you, you actually did it, and you, but you, you went the step further, which was to actually come up with an idea. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> you did it away because you figured let's do you know one picture an hour for 24 hours yeah that was the basic s- yeah. setup wasn't it yeah so tell me about it well i have a very stubborn mind in that when an idea comes into it i don't have loads of ideas mm. right but um i have a very stubborn sort of mind that whereby if an idea like that comes in i just will have to do it because i'll feel like a failure if i don't and it's such a clean, simple idea. And it just, I thought I was going to be leaving East London where I live and moving somewhere else. And um, I thought I should really photograph all the things I love about being here. And I started putting them all together, a long list. And then I thought, well, they, they actually, they all kind of work at different times of the day. Maybe I should just do a day of like favorite things. And it sort of kicked it around a bit. And then I was like, well, no, what, what, what? why don't I just try and do a shoot an hour for 24 hours? And then it was about a month before the longest day. And I thought, why don't I just do it? Why don't I do it on the longest day and call it the longest day? Because it will be the day that nearly kills me. Because and, and, and we did it on the longest day, which was a Monday that year, 2016. And you wake up at sort of 9am on the Sunday. And then you start work at sort of 11pm. So you, you you should be going to bed then, really. But actually, I started work. And then we did manage to do a portrait per hour every hour, and uh, which was an incredible achievement, seeing as a lot of them were streetcasts. So we had to go... Oh, so we, you didn't necessarily plan it all? No, not at all. No, we couldn't fill every slot. Mm. So at 2 a.m., after having shot the Imam at, at Night Prayers on Whitechapel Road, and prior to that, Johnny Wu at Dalston Superstore... Um, that's a quite a contrast right there yeah exactly <laughs> but but that was that was for quite deliberate and right, it's right, boom, right. boom yeah. you know go in and, and and we'll come to the newspaper thing that i produced but that, that it really was deliberate and then straight after the imam we went to the meat market in smithfields to shoot a portrait hopefully of a butcher there and this incredible guy came out and and it just sort of rolled forward then we went to the 24-hour uh, uh car wash in shoreditch and onwards you know mm. so it was uh, a real challenge, and I managed it. You know, there's a, there's a few. I had some great help from some incredible people, Matt, ha- Matt and Callum, assistants, loyal assistants. You yeah. did the whole thing, and some film crew came around with me too. And yeah, man, we did it. And the interesting thing about it for me was that just doing it wasn't enough. So on the Tuesday, we retouched all the pictures. So I didn't sleep for like 42 hours or something like mm. that, which is. It's quite an interesting challenge. and <laughs> Not advisable. Yeah, not advisable. Yeah, I hadn't done that since the sort of 90s. And uh, we uh, retouched on the Tuesday, designed a newspaper on the Wednesday, printed a newspaper on the Thursday, and distributed 5,000 newspapers on the Friday at tube stations in East London. Wow. Um, which was a really lovely thing to do, but magnified by the fact that the Friday was the day after the referendum. Mm. Which... It was a horrible rainy day in so many ways for me. Yeah. And uh, we handed out all these papers. It went really, really well. And suddenly this document, to me, felt like a wonderful celebration of all the values we love, that it was shot in a, a, a gay club, you know, the, 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 first, the first shoot. It was 
shooting the imam at night prayers it was a celebration of a great many aspects of creativity there's a lot of creatives in there it's music people that we in east london celebrate and it was upsetting to hear that not everybody in the country feels the same about immigration and, and aspects around that and um but here we were with this lovely living document of um our beautiful part of the world and i'm pleased to still and, and it really brought home how much we love living here so we didn't move basically <laughs> <laughs> and uh i'm glad we didn't yeah well tom thank you so much i thank you, very much appreciate you chatting it's been it's been really interesting and enjoyable to catch up we're going to do the uh, additional member only co- um, oh, questions yeah. now so you've got more work to do but um for the time being thank you tom thanks so much mm-hmm.